Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics! You've done better. Yeah, but, you know, I didn't feel like doing better today, so get off my back. Okay. Uh, Today we are joined by a special guest, Alejandra. Say hello. Hello, everybody. And today we're going to be talking about uh, genres and sort of character tropes, or shall we say uh, the ratio of characters within certain genres. Uh, The prison of genres. Okay. Something like that. (laughs) That can be the working title. (laughs) Um, The prison of genres. Yeah, look, I'm I'm, I'm cranking up the drama lever. Uh, We should have done that for the intro. Ouch. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Um, so before we get started, we're going to do uh, go over a little bit of some of the news that's happened. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Neil Simon passed away. Yeah, this is this yeah. is one of those uh, moments where theater and uh, film culture overlap, since Neil Simon's like primary skill was turning his plays into films, right. or at least into screenplays. <laughs> Yeah, this... very prolific too. Oh, oh yeah, extremely prolific. Like I, more prolific than I think people give him credit for. Because I didn't realize he was nominated for like what fifty Tonys. Uh, like he oh, wrote I... that many. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean he did write uh, a, like more than a hundred films, or I think. I don't like. I know three. A hundred, a hundred and one, according to IMDb. So. Wow. That is an impressive uh, resume. Yeah, um, and I mean I. It's it's one of those things where it's like uh, the the theater department at the uh, undisclosed uh, high school where Jeremiah and I went were were huge fans of Neil Simon. Like there were a lot of Neil Simon plays that went on like while we were still in school, and they were pretty good. When uh, I in terms did my of directing class, in terms of writing. when I did my directing class, I did a scene from The Sunshine Boys. Ah. Hmm. But Neil Simon for me was the first time that. This makes any sense that they realized that dialogue could have a voice. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Like right. a like a voice like a voice right on the page. You mean or like like when you could like hear the dialogue and go, I know who that is. Okay. Yeah. 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 I get that. Um, because like I first saw the Odd Couple and then I would see like the Sunshine Boys. I was like, that sounds like the Odd Couple. Hmm. And there was a distinct voice, and I was like, I knew dialogue mattered when I saw Abbott and Costello's who who's on first. But, like, the knowledge that you could have an authorial voice or authorial voice was Neil Simon for me. Oh. Well, that's a big... That's a big... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think maybe the, the... The Neil Simon movie that I would recommend people see the most, which... Okay, there's a lot of problematic stuff in it, like, and in some ways it, it fits really well with what we're going to be talking about, but uh, I think Murder by Death is a really interesting movie <laughs> to see in terms of the conversation that we're having, because it shows, it showcases a lot of the problems that we'll be talking about in our, in our episode today. Uh, uh, I used to love that movie as a child, and then, like, the more, like, the older I got, I was like, I can't, oh, God. Exactly. And, and that, to me, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be watched. Exactly. Although, if you're gonna, if your choice is between murder by death and something that, like, is actually inclusive and is, is pushing forward, like, uh, more open and interesting and diverse cast, then, then watch that thing. But, uh, historically, as an idea, uh, to get a, a look at the slice of, what we for the for the twentieth century thought of mystery stories through the lens of parody, uh, I think it's it's a good object case. Let's say. All right, uh, Alejandro, do you have a movie or anything about Neil Simon? Uh, well, I mean, the only the only thing that I've, I have seen is The Odd Couple, and yeah. you know, um. I you, you know he was great. I I I can't say that I am like uh an you know an expert on uh <laughs> of him. Well, I can't be a fan if I've watched one movie, right? right. Uh, I can certainly <laughs> yes, I can certainly admire his his uh how prolific he was. Mm. I mean, writing one movie is hard enough. Um, 
And also, I'll watch anything with Le- Jack Lemmon in it. So yes. Right. <laughs> well, like, for me, he was the reason why I discovered Walter Matthau, which I'll ever be grateful because there are a few yep. actors who look like Walter Matthau. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He, he Walter Matthau looks the most like himself of anybody. <laughs> I think. Uh, for me, like the Odd Couple is weird because I love the Odd Couple, yet I'll fully admit, like the whole middle of the Odd Couple can totally be skipped. <laughs> The beginning that and a lot. <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot more than than people think in film. Oh yeah, uh, like that. When people say it's a really well written movie, what we mean is you can watch the whole thing. Because yeah. Raising yeah. Arizona is great, but the beginning and end is really fantastic. The middle, not so much. And I, yeah, I feel like that's something that's not talked about enough in terms of like criticism gets boiled down to, to binary positions a lot, but you know, the, the, the place within discourse of the movie that has some excellent parts and also some incredibly like forgettable, skippable, like predictable things is probably more movies than are actually great or terrible. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. To further the debate we're going to be having on debate, the conversation we're going to be having uh, is new said, uh, I don't know if you guys were aware of this, but they are trying to remake Big Trouble Little China. Uh, what I what I read when I looked into this, because I hadn't heard of it before you brought it up, is that it's not a remake, but it is supposed to be like a sequel slash continue. The, the literal word they use is continuation. Yes. The fact that they avoided the word, the word sequel I thought was kind of interesting. Well, understand that this has been in the works for about three years. Hmm. Uh, I have known about it for three years because the moment I heard The Rock in Big Trouble in Little China, I was excited. Because that is the that, right choice. Right, because <laughs> if anyone could play Jack Burden, it's going to be The Rock. Uh, and but I, I not like, only that, I like but I, idea, I feel it would be a step closer to what they were trying to do with the original. Yeah, I could see that. But now... I, I, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, now with this sort of like continuation, I was like... So now I feel like they're just trying to do Jumanji over again. Which, don't get me wrong, I gave Jumanji the short script before I saw it before and I was blown away. Yeah. I don't know. I, in some ways, I I would, I actually prefer the idea of it, it being a continuation or something. Because, uh, I mean, A, I have way too much of a soft spot for Big Trouble. Like, obviously, just, <laughs> when I, I can't fairly impartially judge that. Not that it's easy to do that, even when it's, whatever. But, uh... But also, I, I feel like the bit in Big Trouble works better when it's the dumb white guy presuming he's the protagonist as opposed to The Rock. Right. I can see that. <laughs> like, I, I'm sure I'm sure it'll still be, like, The Rock can bring charm to the flattest of characters, so if it finally sees screen, I'm sure I will enjoy it, even if it's not good. <laughs> uh, Alanda? Um, uh, well, I love Dwayne. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think this movie has made it to 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 Mexico as as a thing. You know, like I, I first heard about it this morning, and <laughs> and uh, googled it. Sounds fun. Uh, didn't have time to see it, but um, yeah, no, it hasn't made it so far. I think it'll be interesting uh, if if it ever comes out. If we ever talk about this uh, again. That uh, this would be the first time that this has come. Yeah, uh, like the, here. Like what happens when uh, a movie is made as nostalgia bait for American audiences, but nobody else saw the original. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure that the original came came out, you know, uh, in in its original time in, mm. in, in the 80s, but it didn't become like the movie that you see on on open television that that uh, pops up again and again. Uh, which means that my generation is practically unaware of it, right? So it, but we are aware of The Rock, and and we will certainly become aware of the of the original. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I just did, but I mean the audience in general. Well, so yeah, yeah I mean it, it's it's a it's a it's kind of a niche movie, which you can also tell because they're just this year, I think, a board game version marketed at like the people who buy really expensive board games at nerd conventions uh, just came out. So I feel like the I feel like it has a very targeted appeal. Let's well, say understand that this is a John Carpenter movie that bombed even by Carpenter standards. Um, and he uh, bombed like for as much as we loud Carpenter, uh, <laughs> he bombed a lot in the eighties. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
it, it, is, it is interesting because um, a lot of the things that were considered niche, even back in the 80s, are now mainstream. Yeah. Right. So what, what will work um, today probably wouldn't have in the back in the day. I don't know. And since it's not like Ghostbusters that was huge here as well as there and everywhere in all the yeah. world, right? Yeah. Uh, where there were expectations and people were going, ah, it's just not the original, you know? Right. Um, I, I, I still catch people talking about that even now, and it's like, ugh. Which is odd, because the one just... thing they complained about was they didn't want it to be like the original. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't win. There's no, it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, for sure. Although that this this does this does make me sad because if we were going to remake a, a Carpenter movie from the eighties with The Rock, the obvious choice is they live. Like, that, I, I don't understand that. I agree with you in principle on that one. At the same time, <laughs> there's something about They Live that is almost so perfect for what it is. And of course, you can yeah. remake it. I just don't know if modern artists would. It's a slow movie, oh. but it's meant to be slow. Oh, yeah, no, and also, its themes would mean that at least half of the country would, like, protest against it by default, so. <laughs> uh, Never mind the fact that we, you, with the current president, you could argue, argue that it has more relevance than it did during the Bush era when we last talked about this movie, now it needed to be remade. Yeah. Ah, uh, whatever. Right. So... Yeah. That being said, we've talked about two genre movies, or two movies that traffic in genres. What do we define as a genre movie? What, is, what do we consider genre? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just throwing a throw off the loaded question first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just wrote an article about um, genre. That I covered the, the tip of the iceberg, basically, but... Um, but commercially, it's categorization of movies uh, yeah. based on audience expectation, right? Um, now, if you get into into it a little bit more, uh, you know, you get into the, well, sci-fi is a genre, but what defines sci-fi? You know, like, there's so many different kinds of things. Maybe sci-fi is just the setting, and the genre is really what's going on with the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, for screenwriting, certainly, it's more useful to look at genre in in terms of theme and emotion than uh, what surrounds the characters. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I think it's a categorization uh, that changes depending on the context that you're talking about, right? You're talking about selling, you're talking about writing, uh, directing, you know. I know that's not an answer, but... <laughs> no, no, that's an answer. Uh, uh, don't mind me. I was chuckling at the food truck in Jeremiah's background. Um, <laughs> that food truck does business. Follow it. Run. <laughs> That's where all the affordable goods are. Uh, um, I don't know. For me, it, it, there are sort of two main lines that I think of because you have movie genre versus a genre movie. Mm. Um, and I mean, when when we talk about uh, a movie genre, I feel like what what you're talking about is is basically like the the long and short of it. It's it's the the way that we categorize these things is a sort of like a, a cultural template that has a particular you know sphere of influence. And sometimes its boundaries grow, and sometimes they shrink. And there are plenty of different approaches within a particular genre. Uh, but but you know by and large, it's it comes down to to categorization sort of at the top, and then what you do with that categorization can go in a lot of different directions. Whereas when I think of a genre movie, sort of capital G, uh, you, you get that kind of in the same way when we talk about pulp fiction, not not capital letters, like the 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 idea of you know right, the the, the, the cheap actual, the, right the old the, school the cheap, stories yeah yeah the cheap paperback like uh, kind of culturally dismissive way that it, that like talking about something being pulp when we talk about something being genre, it's usually something that is regarded as low culture it'll be you know within a couple of specific areas whether it's uh westerns or detective stories or science fiction and fantasy like honestly the the ones that that jeremiah the way jeremiah broke it down in the outline i think are are sort of the main categories i think of as well like your your horror your sci-fi fantasy even though that is a weird thing to lump together (laughs) but it's uh but but in that in that sense genre movie to me almost always primarily is a term of judgment it's not a serious movie, capital S, capital M. It's a genre movie, capital G, capital M. Mm-hmm. 
Well, which oh, yeah. is odd because the genre because they make the all the money in the world. I <laughs> remembered the most fondly by critics. Yeah, um, which is, uh, I, and I think that goes back to is it the the Ebert who who talked about like loving monster movies as a kid and then growing out of them and, and then growing back into them. Wasn't um, so much monster movies; he was talking about special effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and like, yeah, I, I, I like that, that idea of that trajectory because I feel that, that strikes me as very true of like that idea of like, oh, I need to get over and, and be like snobbish about things I liked as a kid. And then later you're like, wait, what am I doing? I like those. They're fun. I can, I can appreciate them as an adult. Who cares? Right. Um, For some reason I thought of high school musical, um, okay. <laughs> which I hated when I was in high school and I now look fondly back on <laughs> I don't know. No, high school is, I think, when the beginning of that, like, turning against things that are, are too, like, beneath you uh, will usually take root. Um, mm. The desire to be cool and and sort of the belief that you know what you're talking about will yeah. consume you. Uh, <laughs> and, in terms of, and, I, and in terms of white guys, it's almost always terminal. I'm sorry. <laughs> Never goes away. Oh, no. <laughs> But I don't know. That's that's what I got. Jeremiah, did you uh, did you have well, a, a for take? Me, genre becomes helpful in terms of like sort of in a way to categorize something in a way how you sort of encapsulate mm. what you're trying to do. Uh, from yeah. like, if you're a writer, Alondra could probably speak to this, and so could Thad. Of like, you want to write a story. One of your first thoughts is, how do I want to like how do I, what do I want the feel to be? And you're probably just like just a shortcut. Verbiage be like, I want this to be like this genre. I want it to be like a Western. Yeah. I want it to be. It helps something, you put it into words what you're trying to do. Yeah, something that helps you get away from the existential horror of the blank page and the blinking cursor. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it's like a, um, a, some, someone taking you by the hand and being like, okay, you can start here. Right. Uh, see what you do later. You know, that's, that's your thing, but let's start with this. These kind of parameters, at least. When you start with the genre, you have you comes with almost like a map and a rule book of certain things that you have to yeah. do and how the genres normally work, and then you start playing with those, and that starts to help you. It's one yeah. of uh, it's also when you start to realize how much most genres have in common, because when I know we still talk about Logan as we should, but the amount mm-hmm. of people who say, "Well, it's really a western," no, 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 <laughs> it's really a noir, and I'm like, it's both. It's really it just can, Logan. It, it, it can be can. two things. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, no I, I, I find genres much more easier as a descriptor and as a shortcut. Almost like as a, because there's a lot of loaded things that comes with stories. So it's mm. almost like just an easier way to describe things and as few words as possible. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I, because, I mean, I think that we can all agree that that uh, the commercial genres as advertised or as sold in, in trailers are just a, an entry point. And, and if you would consider, you know, horror, oh, just horror, that's it, you know, and these are the parameters, that would be incredibly reductive uh, considering what film and TV can do beyond that. Yeah. And I feel like that, like, it, it, it's a tool. Uh, but I feel like it, and, and it has that particular use value for writing, as, as Jeremiah was talking about. But it, that also comes with a lot of pitfalls if people start to take the 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 idea of the genre as being sort of in, invaluable. Like you you have to follow this, that, and the other, or else mm. you're doing that genre wrong. So it's it's like that balance of using it as a guide or or, or sort of an uh, idea to spring from but not using it as like a, a, as having boundaries you can't cross. Uh, mm. I, I don't mean like the like edgy version of like, ooh, I'm crossing boundaries, but just like in terms of, of, you know, telling new stories and, and like trying to continually like broaden your, your, what you're doing within or around a genre. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but for sure. If, if not, we would still, you know, we would have the same movie 50,000 times since <laughs> arguably began. we do arguably we do <laughs> I mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but maybe a thousand instead of 50,000 times <laughs> right but no like I, I find it like the, the best writers 
and directors where when they do a genre movie will almost mm. start to investigate or interrogate the genre try to figure out why these rules are what they are and they'll play with them yeah the the deconstructive impulse right. in uh i i feel like that that's where we of course get a lot of terms that are acting like they're new or like a separate genre like when we talk about the neo-noir instead oh, yeah. of a noir well it's yeah. like well neo-noir like i get the impulse but when most people say neo-noir what they mean is a noir story that is doing something outside of the strictest genre conventions imposed by like what that meant in the 40s right yeah <laughs> when even then not to mention go ahead alanda uh, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. Not to mention that in the '40s, noirs weren't called that. They yeah. were uh, <laughs> right melodramas. Uh, so it's yeah, it's 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 that weird like imposed idea of what the past was. Which is like, and even though I wrote it down as a genre, noir is almost a meaningless term. It's, oh well, yeah. <laughs> because when you say noir, most people think of gangster movies or the hardball detective stories. But there's right. also a lot of stuff like Dead on Arrival, which is about a guy, uh, an insurance salesman, who gets poisoned with irradiated um, radiation, and he's trying to find out who poisoned him and why. Like, or the or the third man, right? Uh, where you have like the dude's friend coming into town after he supposedly died, and then you unravel like it's just him trying to figure out what's going on and being kind of a doofus. Noir, more than anything, is less of like a particular way, uh, particular like style of story, and more just about the psychological aspect of the characters. Yeah, yeah. That it's also it's also got a lot to do with um, filmmaking, uh, with with the technical aspects of filmmaking and how yeah. they were shot and the lighting and all of that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, an, an aesthetic more than right. like yeah. any particular story. Like when you watch a noir movie, nine times out of ten, almost actually no, a hundred times out of ten the characters feel trapped or there's like it feels like the thing set in motion is beyond mm. their control it's as if no one is in control and they all are so like the ending is preordained and they just there's no other way it can end simply because yeah. people cannot behave any other way like cycles and, of violence and right. uh and doom yeah, like you can have, there is, you could have some comedy. There is a lot of comedy in noir, but it's always sort of like, almost sort of morbid humor. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so, speaking of genres, so so what particular uh, point of view are we going to be uh, poking at this concept from, Jeremiah? The notion that the, a lot of genres, well, since the majority of story, storytelling sort of monopolized by the straight, white, heterosexual male view. Um, I said straight and heterosexual. Those are the same thing. I don't know. I feel like uh, there's an argument to be made that you can be clearly <laughs> heterosexual, but that that's another that's another day. We're not doing that now. Right. But you know what I mean? Like it's like the fact is so many genres seem trapped by the sort of because movies and books have always been from this one point of view, the sort mm. of countless other stories baked within a genre that never really get explored. For example, even if they would make, I just finished a book called Mm -hmm. "The Not So Good Nurse" by Mabel Manny, and it is a parody of the old Pulp Fiction style of the Hardy Boys, only through the lens of a lesbian heroine named Sherry Aimless and her crush um, Nancy Clue. Oh, (laughs) Clue! It's kind of amazing, but like I love those names. But, like, it behaves exactly like those types of stories, but the mere addition of queer reality and the fact that it goes out of its way to make sure there are almost no men within the story, and if they are, they're usually either effeminate and or gay. Mm. And they are, like, the women are the heroes, they are both the heroes and the damsels of distress, and the fact that queer sexuality is something that exists, but also... They, uh, the external heteronormative threat is a real thing, but it's still mm. upbeat and fun with dark undertones because it is, in fact, a Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like also not just the, the points of view that have overall been left out of certain genres, but also the ones that would in many ways make more sense to focus on within the idea of the genre, but just haven't been. Exactly. Uh, mm. Well, it's one of the... A perfect example... 
it's not really a genre movie, but what do, do I think drive home the point? When you watch Guardians of the Galaxy, there's mm-hmm. really no reason why it's not for, it shouldn't be from Gamora's point of view. It makes the yeah. most sense to be from Gamora's point of view. And since mm-hmm. this was a rewrite by James Gunn, I would bet you it probably was originally from Gamora's point of view. I would be really curious to see what the that earlier script looked like. Well, uh, I mean, go ahead. Yeah. No, I just that's 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 something a move. That's something I would like to see uh, for sure. Like remake them, please. <laughs> <laughs> this is my thought. <laughs> well, okay. Moving on to a different genre like westerns, it makes no sense not to have more native Latino Asian Chinese would, would be a really good uh, uh, addition to because like the amount of Chinese Americans there were in the the West, right? But they're only ever just background figures in most movies well, that we see. The story of of the American West, hmm. both in mythology and in what happened, is a fascinating time, and Absolutely. I think. Part of the problems we have with it is the West is inexorably tied to the Civil War. Mm. And most of the people who went to the West went to escape the new America, either from the North or the South. And the experiences from the Civil War, like, left a mark on them. And so you Mm. have this weird sort of almost the American experiment part two. Mm. And people, I think, just don't feel comfortable with that. Or at least they only feel comfortable with a very particularly framed version of that. Right, the white point of view. Yeah. <laughs> Which is also... A some... male. The male. Exactly. Yeah. Because, I mean, that there's, a, there's a point of, a, of um, the prostitutes owning practically um, the, the little... The little towns uh, from from that time in the West. Yeah, like what? ways that women could find success and their own sort of measure of like control and power. Yep, exactly. Uh, and it's, it's one of the things where like um, there was a really interesting book I forget who wrote it called "The Real Civil War" R E E L, and it talked about how the depictions of the Civil War have influenced our views of the Civil War, and the mm. same can be said about the West. Because we only see those stories, we tend to think that's how the West was. Uh, There's a wonderful Robert Altman movie called McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And it doesn't look like a Western. And that's because when the costume department came to Robert Altman, it's like, here's your 10-gallon hats, here's your spurs and everything. Robert Altman's like, that's not what they wore. (laughs) And the costume department (laughs) people are like, yeah, it is. Look at these pictures. Those are from movies. Altman was like, those are plates. Those are $50, $60 plates. That means they got dressed up to get those pictures taken. Ah. That is not what they wore day to day. That is what they wore to have the right. picture taken. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I think that's not just the West, but any any movie genre that is based on, or at least well, air quotes based on, that takes place within a particular historical sphere ends up dominating the cultural imagination as to what that is is or was like. Um, right. One of the one of the most recent uh, like nerd sphere complaints about this I remember was one of the was it the last most recent season of Doctor Who I think anyway there they showed like a, a black Roman centurion and like certain <laughs> spheres air quotes of uh, internet people got real mad at this but it's like the the Roman Empire covered, like, North Africa and all around the Mediterranean. <laughs> there were black Roman soldiers. Just because you didn't see them in movies that you've seen about Rome doesn't mean they didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wasn't it Doctor Who uh, also that uh, had an episode uh, about the... the Oh, my God, what was it called? The Ice Fair? The, the oh, yeah, the Frost Fairs. Fair. Yeah. yeah, the Frost Fairs. Yes, that's right. Uh, that showed, uh, you know, a little more diversity within English <laughs> right. community like at that there time. Were, and people there were, like, were people what? of color in <laughs> London. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is like, again, it goes back to the power of images. I remember one of, like, I didn't realize how white BBC Sherlock was. Yeah. Until someone pointed out, like, there's no POC in the BBC Sherlock. And my 
gut reaction was, well, that's because they don't, of course, they exist, Shimon. Why would you think otherwise? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, but like, it's, it's a reflex that's not built. And I feel like this is one of those things that is often used to derail conversations about this. It's not like we build that internal reflex on purpose because we hate, like, people of color as individuals. Right. We build up that reflex because of the things that we've already seen. Hmm. Uh, and it it become like it's still bad. It's still an execra- it's still an execrable thing to think. But the fact that we're not do that that it's like oh I didn't do it on purpose. I'm not a bad person. Well, you can you can still have terrible cultural impulses that you just inherit. And if you don't do anything about them, then it becomes your fault. Yeah, I mean, once uh, you're aware of it, you you definitely should uh, make yeah. a a conscious effort. And let me tell you, that doesn't uh, just apply to to white people, I have yeah. that. You know, I, I see a movie and I don't think it's... Well, I used to. And now Nowadays, I'm a little more bitter about the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I, used to, I used to not blink an eye, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, that's that's what the world is like outside of my little bubble. Yeah. All white. But, I mean, I, I think about... I mean, going back to Westerns, I mean, I think about really the first Western that brought that, like the the living in the wreckage of the living in or trying to escape the wreckage of the civil war was uh for me the good the bad and the ugly right. which i think is is really interesting that it took like a, a a european director to reframe that in a way that wasn't the usual american version of the western because it's not like i grew up on john wayne movies so they still right. mentioned civil war things but it was just it was breezed past. It was a moment of dialogue. Oh, yeah, I fought in this battle. And then moving on. Uh, mm. As opposed to being like, oh, no, here's here's just... All these people are scarred by right. what has happened. And they're trying to get away from it. And they can't because they bring it with them. Well, like, even Eastwood carried that on with the outlaw Josie Wales. Mm. But, like, um, most Westerns almost ignore the Civil War entirely. With the exception of, like, the Oxbow incident with Henry Fonda. Mm. Which is an old 1946 western. Uh, one of the characters is a Confederate general, and he's referred to as that renegade Tetley. Mm. Like they make a clear distinction of, yeah, he fought on the losing side as well as he should be known as the losing side. <laughs> he but, fought with the losers, right? He's the renegade. He's not the rebel. Of he's the renegade. He's the one who went against. Yeah. Um, and that's probably one of the few times I've seen in a Western in which there is even mention of any kind of conflict that led to this. Mm. But um, oh. women, uh, as Alhanda brought up, women in wars and in Westerns um, have almost no place, even though, as she brought up, there's no reason why they shouldn't. There's a old Nicholas Ray movie called Johnny Guitar starring Joan Crawford and Mercedes mm. Cambridge. It's one of the only Westerns that has two main... Two women as the main characters, who are the main characters. Ooh. And since also, because Nicholas Ray is openly bisexual, there's also one of the few Westerns that has a sort of like underlying queer subtext involving women. Oh, I want to see this movie. And that came out, and that came out in the 50s, which is just spectacular. Yeah. Um, it's by the same guy who did um, Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, oh. I own I own it on DVD, but it's a fascinating western. Hmm. Yeah, because I I have to admit I'm I'm not a fan of the western in in the, I mean the the classical western the John Wayne yeah yeah um sort of thing I just you know I I remember falling asleep on <laughs> <laughs> on a screening at a screening at my film studies class and I had to watch it again at home because I just couldn't <laughs> sit through it. Which yeah. one was it? Do you remember? Oh God! Um, oh my God! I I will not be able to remember the name, but it was uh, the one where the girl gets taken and is kidnapped by. Oh, the searchers! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. Yeah, was it? Yes. Which I I will give you this. It is a boring movie. It really <laughs> is. I I yeah. I'm pretty sure I fell asleep the first I watched it too. Although I think I was nine. So. Right. Like, <laughs> It's also one of those movies where it's hard to like fathom when when you go back, like how fundamentally racist it is. Oh God, yeah. yes. Oh and yeah. Like, and like it is a beautifully gorgeous, ugly movie, and that's yeah. also deeply fascinating that it's utterly boring. It just happens. It's to also have, like, weird. <laughs> I feel like it's also a weird choice of a movie to show in isolation, since it's very built on the westerns that came sort of directly before it. 
Yeah. No, I mean, we were doing a, a whole thing okay. on, on Westerns. Yeah. We saw, like, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, and, you know, some of the good ones, but then <laughs> some of the old ones that I was mm. just like, I, I'm not into this <laughs> yeah. at all. But, uh, I mean, I, I also feel like the, the that idea of, like, the the Western is a more time-locked genre than it needs to be. And I mean, we see we see things mash these together more. Like I think of uh, um, No Country for Old Men as both sort of a western and a noir, right. uh, but also like it's it's one of those things where there there are a lot of places that are on the edge of society, or that are are sort of. Uh, and I, I I don't know. I feel like in some ways you could look at The Wire. Uh, it's a TV show, but I don't care. It still counts as a kind of. <laughs> As a kind of Western, as like people like finding ways to survive when they are sort of either cast out or choosing to not exist within the normal like expectations of society or they don't have the option. Uh, So I don't know. Like, I I feel like there's a lot of crossover between like Western and noir themes that isn't explored enough because the idea of the sort of hero Western dominates uh, that genre. Well, yeah, not to mention that it's like. Um, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh uh, yeah, uh, that it's sort of locked into a period of like six years in a <laughs> certain yeah. part of the U.S. Uh, you know, so yeah. it, in that sense, uh, like you could say, um, Winona Earp, which mm. also a TV show, also counts, um, is, <laughs> is 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 one hundred percent a western, right? It it it, oh. it contains you know. Uh, loner outsider comes back to hometown. Everybody looks upon her as, as you know, as the the, the bad influence, the, the, mm. the sort of uh, outlaw. But in, at the same time, their savior, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But uh, you know, a, a, a purist, which exists, you know, <laughs> a, a purist of the genre would say no, because it's not eighteen fifty something, sixty something. Yeah. You know. This this can't be a real I, western. Nah. I can't yeah. imagine living like that, but all right. Um. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, I've 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 been that guy about comic books. I'm sure right. I I've overwritten those memories, but I'm sure they still happened. Hey, we're all that guy about something, right? right. Uh, I don't want to get bogged down in westerns, but I do want to move oh, yeah. on uh, to horror movies because Ooh, yes. horror movies have this really odd dichotomy of both having really great roles for women. At the same time, being absolutely toxic towards them. Yeah. <laughs> and that goes uh, double if you're a person of color or you happen to not be straight. Yeah. I mean, so much of uh, so much of the the sort of tradition in horror is uh, kind of punishing characters for being outside of the norm. Well, indeed, mm. the the whole push of the horror genre is exploiting non-normative things. Sort yeah. of picking at the scabs of, oh, you think you're safe. Well, what if this happened? Mm. Or what if someone found this out about you? Mm-hmm. And, like, yes, you have what's called the final goal trope in which there's going to be one girl who always survives and she kicks the psychopathic serial killer's ass, but that's only because she's normally a virgin shy she's virtuous there's something about her that heteronormative males find she's the appealing one, she's the one who deserves to survive exactly yeah uh, because she follows so this society's moral society's mores she gets to live and be the hero unless there's yeah. a sequel in which she'll die in the first 10 minutes of that and then a new final girl will come out <laughs> right <laughs> oh my god i haven't yeah I haven't seen that, but I, I haven't seen that movie, uh, The Final Girl, just because the the premise itself seems so. Just, uh, I saw the trailer and I'm like, no, hard no. I'm, I'm not gonna lie, The Final Girl is actually really good. Oh really? I was, I was kind of shocked. Like they get to some weird, like it's a weird movie because it's almost like that Pleasantville sort of UHF thing of, not UHF, oh. that one was John Ritter, where they had the okay. got sucked into the satellite. I got nothing. But um, 
it's very it's very weird. At the same time, they really sort of mine the sort of mother daughter relationship in that movie for some interesting Ooh. things. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, but, uh, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen it either. But like, then again, my like I've never actually been big on slasher movie horror in particular. Right. Like I. I tend to it's I it's kind of interesting in retrospect because the ones that I I find myself most gravitating towards are things like Cronenberg things because right. that's or or like John Carpenter's The Thing or things where it's like yeah no we're just gonna have just insane arbitrary horror happening. <laughs> uh, so I don't know what that says about me, but body horror is preferable to slasher movies because uh, screw those. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I I certainly don't enjoy that thing where you're just sitting there waiting for everybody to die, and you have that the person who's going to survive pinpointed from the beginning because, you know, who else could it be? And and it you know the only tension in the room is in what horrible way is the next guy going to die? Um, Certainly don't enjoy that emotionally. When I was younger, I really got, I really loved horror movies, and then I got away from it because the misogyny became too much for me, and then it mm. became one of the things where, like, there are very intelligent women who do enjoy horror movies, and it's like, yeah, there's mm. a misogyny issue, but there's a misogyny issue with most of film. For you. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But um, there's a movie called Sorority House Massacre 2, mm. which... As slasher movies goes, it's one of my favorite because it's so. It's a sequel to obviously Sorority House Massacre One. One would hope. <laughs> but when they do flashbacks, like if they have flashbacks, it's clearly footage from another movie. But the footage is not from Sorority House Massacre. What? What? The footage is in fact from another movie called Slumber Party Massacre. Well, and what? And flashbacks. <laughs> That they used the footage to tell that story is not the story that happened in either A, Sorority House Massacre, or Slumber Party Massacre. What? It is a delightful what? sort of insane little slasher movie. <laughs> but why? But it, and but it's it's one of those things that you have to have already been familiar with, like the movie that came before, to really get the bit. I, well, I guess. Well, no, not really, because it's just watching it. If you understand how film language works at all, yeah. you're just like that is a because like the story that they tell in the flashback is that the woman and the guy are husband and wife, even though one is clearly a college age girl and the other one is clearly a middle aged psychopath killer. I mean, that's not really that so abnormal just like, in movies. Right, but at the same time, you're like, this is clearly not what the, what the footage was meant to be. It's one of the things, like, it's sort of really bizarre, and I kind of love it. Oh, uh, yeah. I can like, get that. I can get that. That It's so weird. I love it. You're right. Uh. And not only that, but, like, there is, like, the women do die, but it's sort of, like, they bring over, like, the next-door neighbor is this creepy sort of overweight guy who gets stabbed, shot, um, thrown off the second, like he keeps, like he manages to live to the end, <laughs> and the whole thing ends up being because there's a spirit that's possessed one of the girls. It's fantastic. It's like oh, more wow. slasher, and that's the thing. Like when you watch a slasher movie, more so than almost any genre, you would just have to accept the premise. <laughs> and like it's one of the things. Well, a lot of genre movies is you're either in it from the beginning or you're out. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, that having to buy the bit, I think, is is very important. <laughs> right. But then you it's have a, it's, it's like, a thing that, like, air quote realism in movies sort of get takes for granted because oh, that that's a familiar world. We don't have to. Right. Then you say mm. you have something like um, Peeping Tom from mm. 1960, which explores the notion of how we watch horror movies and how we watch movies in general, and the notion of the damsel in distress as being the thing we tend to want in movies mm. and what that says about mm. us and what that says about the people who make the stories. Like sort of, sort of a, a movie framed around the male gaze is overtly. It, mm. Well, yeah, it's essentially like real window of taken to the logical extreme mm. because real window sort of does the, Oh, aren't we naughty? Oh, look at us. We're voyeurs. Whereas peeping Tom is like, yeah, we're kind of, we're kind of sick for doing this. Yeah, we're voyeurs and it's not okay. It's not. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, she's go- you're, you're excited because she's going to die. Why is that? Why is yeah. this something you're drawn yeah. to? Yeah, and also I think 
there there comes a point where you also want the the sort of pure version to survive as well. Right. Which I find disturbing in myself too. Yeah, how how a movie gets you to identify with either with sort of the the concept of this happening. Mm. Well, not only that, but how it may accidentally reveal sort of internalized things that have, you've been taught over the years, yeah. and you're like, oh my god, why am I thinking this? The the things that we pick up from culture, whether we want to or not. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, science fiction and fantasy get lumped together. I don't know why, outside of the fact that. Maybe they're just two extremes, and people just feel comfortable putting the two extremes. Together. I think I think it's I think it's more about just like hi- histories of marketing, because uh, like science fiction and fantasy stories will often be in like magazines together. Right. Uh, like one one of the big magazines is the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, so like right. certain types of capital G genre stories will be lumped together because the. I just, just because of the the histories of how they're marketed to a particular audience, I think is at least part of it. Yeah, no, and also the 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 audience for it tends to overlap. Uh, I don't know if that's because of marketing or it started that way and then they started marketing it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly is. Like I can say that I like fantasy and I also like science fiction. And I mean, like the the biggest movie like machine in the world right now, uh, cranking out like Marvel movies or Star Wars are essentially both science fiction and fantasy. Like you get sci-fi and fantasy in Marvel, you get sci-fi and fantasy in Star Wars. Like you know, ma- having them together makes a kind of sense, not mm. intuitively, but historically, I think, or something yeah. like that. Well, I also think that like. One of the reasons why maybe they get lumped together besides marketing is the fact that the two genres, almost more than any other, there's a bigger sandbox to play in. Hmm. I think it also... Fiction, you can do any planet. You can do any interstellar travel. Fantasy is plus fantasy. You can just yeah. make up your own world. You don't have to I think... worry about gravity. You don't have to I think worry about a particular form of government. If you want to create your own, that's fine. It's like... There's a much more world building that goes on in those t- types of stories than you would need to do in a noir or horror or a western. Yeah, well, I think I think this kind of goes touches on what we were talking about horror movies uh, a minute ago was that that idea of how much suspension of disbelief is required. Right. And oh, if, yeah. if there is one major feature that science fiction and fantasy do have in common, aside from the presumed audience thereof, it's that. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it also. Um, well, talking about how we define genre, um, I had a I had a classmate who did uh, uh, you know did an essay on science fiction itself, and there are also genre purists in science fiction who say uh, if there is no real science uh, behind it, it's not science fiction. It's the hard versus soft science fiction purists. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> Which is, if you can't make up stuff, then what's the point of telling a story? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a fight I, I could not care less about. It yeah. would be, like, I've checked. There's no further down I can go. Well, <laughs> people are like, I prefer my science to be like Star Trek science as opposed to Star Wars science. I'm like, But Star Trek no- science is just magic with more specifically <laughs> science-y sounding bullshit. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, some of that becomes reality, luckily. <laughs> but more accidentally than anything right. else. <laughs> Part of that is because they dared to dream it as opposed to it has any face, sort of factual I mean, the, bearing. The idea that Star Trek was about its scientific components and those components <laughs> not being a vehicle for the socially conscious stories they were trying to sell, that is a fiction. Like, <laughs> that is the ultimate fiction. Those are, are those are stories about society. <laughs> no, yeah, no. It, it's it's the only time that has ever happened is nerd audiences missing the point of something that they uh, <laughs> obsess over. Thankfully, yeah. it never happened again. <laughs> yeah, let's hope it never happens again. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> well, I... uh, oh no, go ahead. No, Finn, what were you going to say? Uh, well, I was, I was just going to say, like, in terms of genre crossover, like, one of the ones that I keep thinking about uh, being the, the intersection of sci-fi and noir being cyberpunk, where I like to spend a lot of my uh, 
imaginative space or energy or something. Uh, sort of tying back to, to something that one of my favorite quotes about like pulp crime fiction or about noir, if you want to stretch it that way, is the, the Raymond Chandler quote about like it being more about like, murders being committed for a reason by people who actually have reasons to do so. That, that idea of like bringing a, a weird sort of realism to it. Right. And the the focus in like whether it's a, a contemporary noir or a historical one or or a cyberpunk story still will especially with cyberpunk it will often use the trappings of other cultures like famously with cyberpunk it's always like Japanese cultural iconography is very big because it was it came from the eighties when like Japan was the technological like booming futuristic place to look to. But and, and that's still that aesthetic still shows up, but only ever in background characters or in aesthetics, almost never in point of view characters. Uh, and one of the most egregious examples of this, I mean, the book did it too, but recently uh, Netflix put out uh, Altered Carbon, a science fiction series based on a novel of the same name. And the main character is a uh, someone of Japanese and, I want to say, Slavic ancestry. But he's been put in the body of just a giant white guy. <laughs> and, and again, like, that's, that's part of the setup. And I'm willing to be a little bit... Su- that's not actually the thing that, the, that it did the wrongest, I would say. Because they do, in flashbacks and for, like, certain things, have uh, a, an Asian actor playing who he was initially before he was put in this new body. So it's not full ghost in the shell. Mm. Uh, and, and there's like a tech and there, there is like a textual basis for it. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent against that bit. There are things they do way worse, but still like the, that, that happens over and over. Like you see it in blade runner, which I love both of those movies, but uh, you know, so much of it is like, Ooh, look at this, look at this exotic and interesting, like Japanese looking stuff. Now let's follow the white guys mm. <laughs> sorry that was a whole rant and i've been sitting on it for a while because i think about <laughs> cyberpunk more than almost anything else <laughs> i love uh, it for all its failures <laughs> that's fine uh, i mean yeah i still we all have our yeah I wanna, i'm not gonna say guilty pleasure because you right. just shouldn't feel guilty yeah. about it per se yeah, I think I think being able to have a healthy relationship with the things that are wrong with the things that you love is an important part of like maturing as a consumer of media and stories. Right. Oh, for sure. Oh my god, <laughs> there's so many people in my life who I just like to hammer it with. It's okay if you like it, just don't tell me it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I feel like that's a lot of what most of this comes around to. Like the the genres get protected by that logic right there like they they Mm -hmm. sort of get trapped in cultural amber by that kind of defensiveness and it's a love blade runner and blade runner 2049 even though like for all of this setup they're still just the whitest possible main cast for the most part (laughs) (laughs) and you know you could you could do more uh and you're not but you know i still love the parts that i love and I'm capable of holding both thoughts in my head. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny because uh, noir, like the cousin to noir, noir is murder mysteries. Yeah, and murder mysteries have a subgenre, sort of like the warm and fuzzy subgenre, mm. in which you have people like Miss Marple, Jessica Fletcher, uh, Jessica Fletcher, yeah, and or, or even problematic to some extent, Charlie Chan. Yeah, very but problematic. Very problematic, based on an actual person, though. Yeah, yeah, but like, I'm if you want to see, God, if you want to see, cop who carried a bull whip instead of a gun. Oh God, yeah, no, the history <laughs> of that is amazing. But I mean, that's also like, if you want to see the most problematic. Speaking yeah. of Neil Simon again, murder by death exists, and it will keep existing no matter what. So, well, but well, what these things do, though, in a weird way, even though they are looked down upon, they are doing yeah. more with the genre than some of the more daring things, more yeah. celebrated things with the genre, because. Miss Marple came about from Agatha Christie going to a play, uh, one of the adaptations of the stories, and there was a character she written that was a widow, and it was played by this young, um, up-and-coming young actress. And she was hmm. like, oh, no. I need to write a character for my grandma who can only be played by grandmas. 
Oh, that's excellent. So she wrote Miss Marple so that her grandma and aunt could have a hero they could look up to. Oh, I love that. I, I had never heard that before. That's that's sweet. Yeah. I, I mean it, it's 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 a sort of old uh, you may say example of how just giving any story a different perspective just makes it instantly more interesting in a lot yeah. of ways. Right? I think it also Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's it. Oh no! I think it also gives the lie to the the pushback that people will make about like, ugh, people are just trying to force diversity and blah blah. No, like people have been seeing what's been left out and thinking about like how you could open up these stories and bring in more points of view and more types of people and and more perspectives since we have been telling stories, both you know, for fun <laughs> and professionally. Like it's not new; you just haven't been looking. Mm. Well, perfect uh, example, uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Yes. A lot of people are like, it's just a typical rom-com. I'm like, yes, it's also <laughs> exceedingly well done. And it had less of a 6% drop in the second week, which is Oh, wow. Insane. It had that much retention? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's excellent. Yeah. Because and, 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 all it is is just having an all-Asian cast and adjusting the story to that conceit. Yeah. It has all the rhythms of your typical romantic comedy. And all it does is shows you, like, there's no reason why you ha- you couldn't have done this before. Also, yeah. oh, sorry, uh, you just reminded me, going back to the news from the very beginning of the episode, like, if if they remake uh, or, or sequelize or whatever Big Trouble in Little China, and it is not a, a cast thoroughly populated with Asian actors... Oh, like, oh, we're gonna have that will, be a, that will be a massive step backwards because <laughs> really, that really. movie from 1986 had a real solid like cast aside from the central white people, which were set up to be ridiculous. Not only that, but it had my favorite San Francisco weatherman. I believe his name was Victor <laughs> Wong. <laughs> yes. Uh... <laughs> but sorry, yeah. I just I, I had to had to bring us back to that. <laughs> But that, that notion of uh, yeah, Alanda brought up um, Winona Earp. Yeah. And Winona Earp, all it does is takes it takes Bristol County Jr. and just goes, well, what if it's a woman? Oh, man. Now, if... I need to, now I need to both watch that show and rewatch Briscoe County Jr. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's like this mesh of fantastical and the old West tropes. It's just like, mm. what if she's a woman? And oh, yeah, there can also be gay people, too. And there can also be non-white people involved in the story. And it can be a much broader and inclusive story because there's no reason why it can't be. Yeah. Yep. And a pregnant uh, well, protagonist, by the way. Yes. Two. Oh, wow. They went Excellent. the Marge Gunderson route. Hardcore. Uh, yeah, that is, uh, that is excellent. <laughs> Not only that, but they do an interesting oh. thing by just, a la- since it's a story of women told by women, the women's voices are actually the normal voices. Um, oh really? There's a lot of times I don't think we realize how many, how often women in film and in television, when they uh, act, they are told to raise their voices an octave or two to give it a more feminine lilt. Oh, is yeah, that yeah, something yeah. that happens? Yeah, M- Melanie Scafano has a deep, naturally deep voice, and she's like, "This is the first time I was allowed to use my actual voice." She encouraged me, the show, and encouraged me to use it. Oh wow! Oh wow! Uh, and I mean, also just the uh, going back to westerns a little bit uh, because that that idea of um, uh, that that idea that like oh the, when we see westerns we never see like gay people is obvious like deeply hilarious because this is around the same time you have Oscar Wilde like those <laughs> well and also that, what's even like, deeply gay people hilarious. existed. <laughs> What's even more hilarious is there are a few things, and I mean this in the strictest terms as this man, gayer than a Western. Yeah, <laughs> they really are. <laughs> I oh, mean, God, you watch yeah. Red River, the scene between Montgomery Cliff and I forget who else it is, when they're talking about guns, they are not talking about guns, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like Brokeback Mountain just was the most earnest about it. I but, remember uh, when people got mad like that. I don't want to watch a gay western. It's like, so you don't want to watch a western? <laughs> <laughs> Have you never seen a western? Like the subtext in most westerns. You don't. You don't want to watch a movie about about male homosexuality. 
you don't want to watch a movie about virile young men out there on the frontier with just each other and their horses? Like, no? That's I remember not, okay. a, a good old friend, John O'Dell, I told John, one day I want to wi- write an action movie in which I just have these two strong, young, burly men in this action movie, and it's also a gay love story. And just sort of play on that sort of, like, tone. And mm. Jonna goes, you mean to tell me that's not what already is? <laughs> is, that right. not, is that not what all this already was? <laughs> all right, so we got to start wrapping things up. Um, oh, yeah. Alejandra, thanks for coming on. Uh, where can people find you online? Oh, thank you for inviting me. I should have said this at the beginning, I realize now, but um, I was very excited to join uh, Beneath uh, the Screen today. <laughs> it's okay if you don't know the title. I forget it's it sometimes. <laughs> no, I oh, <laughs> I hesitated. So now you think I don't know the name? Uh, no, it's it's not it's not a reflection on you. It's just because we hate ourselves. That's fine. Oh. Um, well, where can people find you online? Oh yes, uh, sorry. Um, well, you can find me on the Fundamentals. You can find me on Twitter as Alexa Menexa, and uh, I think that's it. Uh, Thad, yeah, are you even on Twitter? I see you on Twitter every once in a while. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I just don't use it well. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter at Thaddeus Strange. Uh, and yeah, that's uh, that's where I am on Twitter. You can find, find me. me also on the Fundamentals. <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter as J Sherman Fiction. Oh, on my Facebook at Jeremiah Sherman. Um, don't forget to listen to our other podcasts, The Phantom Minimalist, Ladies First, and Unabashed Book Snobbery. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, I'm going to have Alejandra on again for another podcast. Um, we enjoyed Yay. having you on. Thank you for joining. Uh, say goodbye, Thad. Goodbye. You see, that's how you do it. Goodbye, everyone. Yeah.